0: Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Bhatia and today we have Checkmate. He is the lead analyst at Glassnode, an on-chain data analytics provider. We're very lucky to have Checkmate here today to explain to us some of the most important things we need to know about on-chain metrics and also his views on the market. Checkmate, thank you for joining the Bitcoin layer today. G'day guys, thanks for having me on. Of course, so start by telling us about Glassnode, what is Glassnode and what do you do there?
1: Yeah, so uh, so Glassnode was really born from this kind of concept or idea that started to form uh, back in 2018 really, um, which is that we can actually take the public ledger and extract information from it. And you know, this can be everything from kind of the macroeconomic side of Bitcoin. Um, but the more that we've kind of analyzed and studied this thing, you can really pull out um, human behavior patterns, right? At the end of the day, what is the blockchain? It's a series of human decisions baked in there forever. So um, you can turn that into all sorts of stuff, whether it's um, uh, kind of macroeconomic flows, you can look at the health of the network, um, you can track everything from the mining sector all the way through to coin supply and exchanges, um, but really turning it into actionable information. And in many ways, right, you see people posting things about GDP and you know, um, uh, bank reserves and all that from uh, from the FRED database. Well, Bitcoin ledger is essentially the uh, the FRED database for for Bitcoin and Glassnode turning that into uh, actionable information.
0: And excellent. So tell us what, because uh, we use Glassnode as well, at the Bitcoin layer, uh, we believe in extracting data from the ledger in order to give us some insight into what's going on in the market. What are you watching most specifically? Let's just start off with, your take on Bitcoin, the market right now, and what are the analytics that you are most interested in and to give you that opinion?
1: For sure. So uh, generally speaking, what I look for is kind of turning points. And we, we often use things that we call cohorts in, uh, in on-chain analysis, which is really trying to group out, right? Who are the, t- I mean, if you think about this, who do you want to be holding this asset right now? Um, if you're at the bear market floor, who do you want to be standing around you? And Essentially, you want those with the highest conviction, right? People who stepped in front of the FTX train—they um, got some pretty, pretty serious stones on them. So that is a set, when you see this kind of um, expulsion of all the speculative capital uh, and a real dominance of the the hodler cohort, people who are willing to kind of step in front of that train—that uh, is essentially what forms these bottoms. And uh, really, for the I mean, through 2023 we've more or less been rallying from what appears to be an almost textbook uh, textbook floor. Uh, you reach the level of loss um, kind of held by the system. You had massive capitulation. And at the end of the day, all of those things create a changing of hands. There's a new set of holders who have stepped in, put in that floor, and really what the next you know couple of months has been about, tracking what they're doing. Are we seeing people from the previous cycle still getting washed out? Are we seeing people who stepped in at 15, 16K Uh, taking profits. And certainly we've seen kind of portions of that. Um, But when we really look at the grand scheme of things, there's been profit taking. It's kind of normal, typical behavior. It's why markets don't go up in a straight line. But what we haven't yet seen is kind of a, a loss of conviction or a kind of view that the market is expensive yet. It's certainly more expensive than it was at 15K, but it also doesn't appear in the behavior of people on chain, um, that we're seeing this kind of, right, that's it, 30K, get me out of this thing. So, it, you know, it's getting a little bit more nebulous and uh, it's it's not that extreme deep value anymore, but we're kind of in that middle range where it's still trying to find, you know, is 30K, is it 35, is it 25? Um, almost moving into that reaccumulation type period that we tend to see uh, following the, these macro drawdowns.
0: And before I pass it to Joe, I want to just ask you one quick follow-up here. So what you're saying to the audience is that what you believe the most important takeaway in the last several months here is identifying that November price action and behavioral action as a key turning point. Once we move away from November, it's harder to sense what's going on, but we do, as, especially as we get further removed from November, we can identify that as the cyclical bottom. Is that what you're telling us here?
1: Yeah, essentially, there was across many, many metrics, um, you know, in terms of the amount of coins that changed hands, um, you can kind of see we have like a volume profile type metric where you can see the amount of coin volume um, and also things like the percent of profit, uh, percent of supply in profit. And what happens is you got a very, very small uptick in price. I think we only went from 16K to 18K, um, which I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was about a 6% price rise. And yet we saw between 11 and 13% of the circulating supply jump back into a profit. And what that tells you is that in that very, very small 6% price range, there's a huge cluster of coins that changed hands. Um, So again, whether that bottom holds over the macro scale kind of remains to be seen as things that like to be tested. Nevertheless, just purely from a a supply-changing hands perspective. Um, It looks fairly robust down there at that floor. Um, And really everything below 24,000 is kind of that same characteristic
2: and uh, behavior patterns that we saw show up. Fantastic. Let's zoom out really quickly. I'm a fan, I've been a fan uh, for quite some time of not just your YouTube videos, but also the newsletter that you guys put out. I think it's tremendous. And for anyone who wants to get more in the weeds on on on-chain research and really deeply understand how to you know how to view Bitcoin through this on-chain lens? Um, you know, you you published uh, Glassnode Insights published uh, just uh, last week uh, a post called "The Allure of Profit." You guys dive into uh, several different charts. Uh, one of the charts that you guys uh, go into, you break up the fractals um, of every Bitcoin cycle that we've lived through as of right now. Uh, I have some more granular questions to to ask you about a couple of different metrics, but. First things first, let's zoom out really quickly. Um, can you gauge for our listeners generally where we're at in the Bitcoin cycle right now? We put in the bottom um, uh, you know, in October, in that November timeframe, and now we're in this stage of, uh, of moving higher. Uh, talk to us a little bit about where we're at in the Bitcoin cycle and a couple of metrics uh, that you've been looking at in confluence with one another that can confirm that.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, one that I've certainly been exploring quite a bit is uh, you, you may have heard the realized price. Um, it's essentially the cost basis of all the holders. Now, there's two really kind of interesting uh, and kind of obscure observations here. Um, when we break it up into cohorts, we've got the classic realized price, which is just take every coin in the supply, including Satoshi, and look at the average price when they moved. Um, now, that generally acts as a bit of a floor model. We spent a bit of time below that um, you know, during that uh, that FTX era. Now, there's also what we call the long term holder and the short term holder, right? People who have held their coins for more than five months and less than five months. And the reason we use that boundary is because, just on a statistical basis, coins are less likely to be spent. Basically, the probability of a spend collapses um, to a very, very small value, sub 1%, once a coin has been dormant for five months. So, anyway, during a bull market, um, the, the fast money, the speculators, the short-term holders, they chase price, right? They're buying dips, they're selling rallies, they are part of that, that price action. Whereas those longer-term holders, the realized price is much, much lower. And then the, the, the total realized price is in between. But the, the core takeaway here is that during a bull market, these three cost bases diverge quite significantly because you have a difference in when people acquired their coins. People who bought a long time ago have a lower cost basis. Now during bear market flaws, they actually converge. And the way to think about this is short term holders are chasing price to the downside, but rather than being speculators buying the top, they're actually people who are willing to step in after Luna, after three arrows imploded, after the the deleveraging. These are people who are stepping in, in the worst of times rather than at the best of times. And the other takeaway there is that because you get this convergence, right? They're all within a couple of percentage points of each other that's a homogenous market. It doesn't matter whether you've been here for six months, two days, five years. On average, everybody's essentially the same. And I was mentioning before, who do you want to be in the trenches at the bottom of a bear market? You want the Hodler cohort. So in many ways, that re-homogenization of the market where everyone's kind of in the same boat tells you you've had a detox. The speculative capital has come out um, and you're essentially left with who's, who's remaining. Um, now, the, the, the second point on this is, I mentioned Satoshi's coins. Um, this is something I've been exploring quite a bit recently. There's a cool paper that we've got coming out in the near term on it. But is it really, when we look at the realized price, is it really fair to dilute the realized cap with all these lost coins? Satoshi's holding extraordinary profits. But if you think about that, to get to a break-even level, that means that Satoshi's tremendous profits and all the early miners have been offset by the tremendous losses of people who are active in the market during the recent cycle. So when you start discounting lost coins, and you actually remove that component, the real true cost basis, a lot of people think the realized price is the cost basis. It's not because you're counting all these lost coins. When you subtract those out, the real cost basis is pretty much where we are at the moment by a couple of different models. Um, so this $30,000 level, to me, it really feels like a bit of a mean reversion back to the true cost basis of the market. Um, which is driven by people who are active today
2: and discounting those coins that are long lost. So
1: an interesting concept, but uh, there'll certainly be more on this
2: later. Absolutely. And actually looking at it up on screen here, the old uh, versus young supply cost basis, it's remarkable what, what you guys are doing. It seems like you know every, every single week there's something new. Um, you guys are always uh, switching up the dashboard, always uh, coming out with seemingly new things. Endless supply of, of of learning and data analytics on that side. I, I have one more question to ask you before I bounce it back to Nick. Um, you, you mentioned you know these different cohorts that you monitor um, at the bottom of bear markets, right? We're seeing uh, you know the 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 hodler cohort sort of take over, right? People who are less likely to spend, and as time goes on, um, you know they are increasingly less likely to spend. This, you know, uh, I, I suppose this is um, a question that you've already answered to some extent. But as we've moved up to 30k from the bottom that we we put in over the the course of the latter half of last year, uh, has this uh, rally really been driven by strong accumulation by that hodler cohort, or is it more so driven uh, by leverage? We've seen uh, over the last, uh, you know, about week, two weeks, um, there have been these uh, crazy uh, rallies and then wipeouts within the over the course of uh, you know, several hours, and we we take a look at the uh, perpetual futures market. Um, you see a huge buildup of open interest, huge wipe out of open interest, and so those moves are driven by leverage. But is the secular move that we've seen since November, from that twenty thousand dollar level all the way up to where we are now at thirty, is that driven by leverage or by spot buyers?
1: That's a great question, and uh, you know the answer is always it is both, but. The question is to what degree is it happening on both sides? Um, and you're absolutely right. There's kind of two things there when you're talking about these, you know, big wipeouts to the upside and the downside. The other thing we have to remember is that market liquidity is very, very light touch. Um, and we're seeing this across all markets, not just, uh, not just Bitcoin, but, you know, rising rates, people have just literally less capital. Um, it is harder to get funding. This banks going down all over the place. So in general, the market has less liquidity full stop. Um, the other thing that we've noted is that uh, options have actually become, uh, the other week, they surpassed futures in open interest. And wh- that, that's the first time that this has happened. And when I kind of look at that scale of things, to me, you know, an option is a, is a defined risk. When somebody is buying an option, or, and a lot of these are call options, people are essentially saying, I want to pay my $150 premium and get exposure for X period of time which means they're exposing $150 to get control of one Bitcoin rather than uh, putting buying the whole Bitcoin. So in some ways, there in terms of the leverage side of things, we're seeing a lot more of it playing out in options, um, which is an interesting development. Um, however, at the bigger scale, the mac- more macro scale, um, I personally think that this is primarily driven by spot. Um, and the reason for this is following the FTX event, we saw a, a the, the largest in history outflow of coins from exchanges. And this is going to be a couple of things. It's going to be people who are, you know, for the first time, they've they've found counterparty risk. They may not have had their coins on FTX or they had some of them there and they've gone, oh, wow, I need to take self-custody and take this seriously. So you saw that side. You also saw people go, hey, 15K, yes, please, um, which is just pure um, inflowing demand. Um But as we've kind of seen this this market rally and push higher, um, we've actually seen a lot of the leverage declining. Um, Now, when we look at things like open interest, uh, if you put on a one Bitcoin size uh, futures contract, if the coin price goes up, then your USD value of that position also goes up. So open interest will obviously track price to some extent. When you revalue and you say, show me the open interest in BTC terms, or the other way we can look at it, show me the um, amount of leverage. How much open interest is there relative to the spot volume or the spot um, uh, exchange balance? You start looking at things in more relative terms. And what we've seen is that a lot of that leverage has actually come down. Um, We've seen that uh, uh, funding rates, they're positive but they're not like rock and roll, full bull market positive. So in many ways, there's a long bias, and that's really only developed in the last couple of weeks. And the higher price goes, the more people are going to be willing to to put on levered positions. But for the most part, what I believe we're seeing is primarily a spot-driven rally. Uh, Now that will change. The higher the price goes and the more volatile things get, the more people are willing to put on levered bets. Um, but for now, a lot of this rally, in my view, uh, appears to be spot demand, and uh, it is reacting quite nicely to many on-chain uh, indicators and levels uh, as a result.
0: Now, you mentioned dormancy at around five months as a good threshold to separate. So now let's focus on the short-term holders right now. What are they doing? What is their behavior as we've uh, you know, basically almost doubled in uh, Bitcoin's price off of the lows last year?
1: Yeah, so this is a really, really uh, important distinction. Um, So generally speaking, kind of in common lexicon, when we talk about long and short-term holders, people think about speculators and hodlers. Um, But a a more correct way to think about this, because you're right, it is based on how long they've held their coin. Um, Now, at the bottom of a bear market, are you a long-term holder if you acquired the day after FTX? I don't know. I mean, that's that's a pretty ballsy move. So to to be able to do something like that, you need to have a bit of higher conviction. So a better way to think about it is not speculators and hodlers. It's when did you acquire your coin? Now, it's it's a little bit out of date, but um uh, as of about 2 or 3 weeks ago, that 5-month boundary was the FTX down get down candle. So therefore, let's put it in that context. Short-term holders are people who bought from FTX onwards, long-term after before FTX onwards uh, or behind. So from that lens, The long-term holders in many regards are actually people who are from the previous cycle and a lot of those folks are going to be resistance on the way up right give me my money back we're back to 30k that's my average cost basis i've had enough of this bitcoin thing right i don't do that 2022 thing ever again um the short-term holders are essentially those who stepped in at the ftx lows now that over time will start to deviate because you also then go oh look, Bitcoin's 30,000, I should buy back in. So you start to get this um, this gradient between they're actually pretty hardcore people and the longer and the more the price goes up, the more it transitions back towards the standard classic approach of they're closer to speculators. So in terms of their behavior at the moment, um, focusing on the short-term holders and actually our report that went out yesterday really focuses on this topic. um, You know, they are taking profits. Um, when we look at things on a relative basis, um, you know, they're taking something like 20% or 20 to 40% profits um, in terms of like the the profit multiple they're locking in. But if you look at it on a dollar value, it's very small. Like it's nothing compared to the 2021 cycle. Um, so in many ways, it's kind of all right, we've had our 2022 bear market. It's been pretty nasty. People have seen a 70% rally from the lows. They're taking a couple of chips off the table, but there doesn't appear to be yet. It's kind of that trading behavior, right? People are taking profits at the expected levels. Um, they're then stepping back in and buying at their cost basis. So in many, and that, and that kind of comes back to that spot-driven market. It appears that the market is kind of doing what you would expect in a rally after a year of down. Um, uh, but we're not seeing like, a, that's it, Bitcoin's done, like 30k, we're going back to zero. We haven't yet seen that behavior showing up in the in the short-term older cohort.
0: Checkmate with us, uh, lead analyst from Glass, Glassnode. Uh, with us from uh, down under, we really appreciate you being with us here today. Now, talk to us about um, havings. Now, this is this is one of my favorite topics because Bitcoin, in its youth, right? Bitcoin at only fourteen years old, has only had three of these events. Now, we're gonna go to a fourth event, and yet, you know. People have such strong conviction on both sides of this argument that the havings are the only thing that matters when you step back and others thinking that, you know, this is probably just a function of the huge adjustment in supply in the early days of Bitcoin. And maybe that effect fades through time. So talk to us about the havings. Where do you come in on havings and what is your outlook here as we head to the having in about 12 months from now?
1: Yeah, it's a really, really interesting topic. And you're right, there's plenty of debate about it. Um, and look, as with many of these things, um, it's going to have an influence. Uh, because obviously, I mean, when we look at mining behavior, um, generally speaking, they distribute the vast majority of their coins, right? Now, if you're selling 900 or 450 BTC at 30,000 versus if you're selling it at 120,000, you naturally need more dollars to come in and take that off your off your hands. Um, but for the most part, I believe that the harbing, it, it certainly adds to that, uh, that factor. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the investment side of this, this thing, right? We're, we're more than no, well more than 90% of the supply mind. Um, we're, we're into this era where the investors have a much, much larger role, right? People who are literally distributing and taking profits um, has a much, much dri- a bigger driving force. Um, The psychological impact, though, right? I mean, Bitcoin is a narrative machine. It is constantly growing new narratives. The halving is one of these few things that seems to survive. Um, You know, people still get excited and it, it, you know, it becomes news and that creates hype. And these things are a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that regard. Um, It's a little bit like the 200-day moving average. Because everybody looks at it, it tends to react every time price comes near it, right? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on that regard. Um, so look, I, I think it does have an impact. I think it has a marginal impact in terms of the supply. I think it has a meaningful impact in terms of the, uh, the behavior patterns. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's a reminder that this thing is pre-programmed and we can essentially price this thing out. And it's, it's almost that reminder of the fundamentals. What is Bitcoin? It's something that's here that we can rely on, we can trust. And uh, in a world where there's not much trust floating around, I think that goes a long way.
2: Absolutely. And, and as we sit and record this tomorrow is uh, the May FOMC meeting, of course, where the, the Council of Unelected Elders meets up and they, they decide the price of money. And so it's very refreshing. The great irony. Oh, absolutely. Right? You know, the, the whole idea of on-chain analytics and being able to uh, observe uh, these behavioral patterns uh, that are native to Bitcoin that is, you know, in, entirely unmanipulated. Uh, it's extremely fascinating to to step away from perhaps granular on chain, but but of course keeping within the the realm of the Bitcoin network. Let's talk about hash rate for a little bit. Of course, that's been ripping, uh, totally face melting. Um, you know, throughout the bear market, uh, it seems that miners were only growing more and more and more efficient, adding more uh, machines onto the network. And of course, uh, every single day, it seems like uh, you know the amount of hashes per second being produced uh, you know by miners is just increasing. Talk to us about minor economics because obviously, last year we saw several instances. uh, And my favorite metric for this is one that you guys have of hash ribbons, right? Um, The uh, 30 and 60 day moving averages of hash rate. We saw several instances of minor capitulation and mass minor log off, uh, you know, as a function of the price continuing to ratchet down, but hash rate continuing to ratchet up and thereby difficulty following it. So, talk to us about miner economics right now with, uh, you know, obviously a little bit of breathing room now that we've moved from 20 to 30 K are more miners, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, not underwater anymore, but uh, also, you know, hash rate is of course uh, continues to, to rise. And so, uh, you know, it uh, it's sort of the, the cost is ever increasing, uh, but now miners have a little bit of breathing room here. So talk to us a little bit about the state that miners find themselves in currently.
1: Yeah. I mean, mining is a tough industry and the more that I, poke around the data and me and the team kind of analyze and look at it from different angles, uh, it is hard to survive because even though price is up from the lows, your hash rate, like the the difficulty in actually trying to find your next block, is just getting harder and harder. So um, a really great way to visualize this is the hash price, right? what is the revenue earned per hash put onto the network? And uh, that thing is just a a very angry logarithmic down only chart. Um, So you really, really have to be top of your game to survive. Um, we also, I mean, another kind of interesting model that we did recently, we called it the, uh, I think it was called estimating the cost of production. And, um, you know, you can run all sorts of models to try and estimate what is the, the average price that people are mining Bitcoin at, right? You can, it, there's ways you can do it. You can literally go and ask a miner. Um, you can do some calculations based on, uh, on hash rate and device efficiency and all that stuff. Um, to me, the ultimate price for mining is difficulty, right? Difficulty includes all of the nuances. It is the price of mining. And, um, you know, whether some guy's mining with S9s on a waterfall or some other guy's using gas on on S19s, all of that information gets baked down into difficulty. Now, when you do a, a log log regression on uh, difficulty and market cap, um, you get an extremely high correlation factor, which makes sense, right? Because um, as the network grows, people also invest in new ASIC technology. Uh, the, the, um, difficulty will follow market cap in that regard. So from that, you can basically estimate a equivalent market cap for miners. Um, and then what you can do is say, all right, give me the price, right? Show me the average price that people are mining at. And what we find is that price does oscillate around it. And also, like most commodities, it returns to its cost of production. 17600 when three arrows blew up, was the level that the market came down and retested, which is this estimated cost of production line. Now, we kind of extended this further and go, okay, let's imagine this is the average price to mine how many days have the miners been in profit relative to that price and how many days have they been in loss now you know i don't know a great deal about economic theory but uh, when you've got a market that is 50% profitable and 50% in loss that to me is a perfect equilibrium and what we found is that it's like 52% of all trading days the miners have been in the green 50 or oh, 48% they've been in the red so it is amazing that the difficulty adjustment really does keep the mining market on its toes. Hash price goes down only. And uh, you're essentially in the situation where if you are not the best operator, you're going to have a hard time. And the, the important thing about that is, doesn't it inspire um, the true capitalist intention of, you know, find the cheapest power, be the most efficient? innovate where you can innovate, because if you don't, you're going to go out of business. So in many ways, it's a beautiful forcing function to make the miners find these amazing stranded energy opportunities. Um, and in many ways, that's one of the mo- things I'm the most excited about. It's going to push forward this space and probably parts of society in uh, ways that we just couldn't have envisioned uh, you know, many years back. The
2: Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from Bitcoin, take, taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further. This is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at
0: checkout. Go to the slash foundation, To get yours today now on with the video we love stranded energy so check can you just talk about stranded energy a little bit we've covered here at the bitcoin layer hydroelectric mining in african national forests um and we've also uh covered interesting mining operations in different parts of the world so just step away from on chain for a second talk to us about What do you think about stranded energy and how it can add to Bitcoin narratives around the world?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, so one of my colleagues actually got me onto this idea and I, I, I really love it. The idea that power is naturally distributed. Power is everywhere, right? Well, sorry, energy sources uh, are everywhere. It's our ability to convert that into power. Um, capital on the other hand is not well distributed. Capital tends to centralize a lot, you know, large portion of the G7, G20. but power is everywhere. If, you, know, you can generate this thing from you know, everything from the sun, um, from hydro, from stranded gas. And you know, when, when you look at things, the, the Africa example, and I think it's Gridless that's doing this, um, incredible stuff. Um, there is no feasibility, right? There's no monetization strategy to build the power generation, whether it's solar or wind or hydro, because you need to do that and then you need to ship it somewhere. So in that time span between building out the power generation infrastructure and actually selling it for your first dollar, you need to build all the infrastructure lines. I mean, that's the, and that's that's um, capital intensive as well. Um, what they're doing here is that miners can essentially set up shop and say, well, we will buy power the second that your generation is ready to go. And in that meantime, you can then run all of your infrastructure to, to local um, townships. So that makes projects that were previously not feasible feasible. And you know, not only does that give power to these communities and energy to these communities, um, it also motivates building out the stranded infrastructure in the first place, right? There's this dam that we, you know, it, otherwise it would not be economical to build it. So there's that layer of things. Um, there's another one that uh, that Daniel Batten's been doing just tremendous work on, which is the stranded gas. Um, you know, o- oil and gas industry is part of our, our our current setup, right? It's very hard to operate society without fossil fuels. Um, and a natural byproduct of that is methane. And the problem with flaring is that if you get even a remotest part of wind, um, it's not going to flare the entire amount. But there's also no economical incentive to pipe that natural gas. Uh, you just can't ship it anywhere else. So again, miners can essentially step in and take methane, which is like 84 or 85 times worse um, as a greenhouse gas, and convert that via you know, 99.99% efficient combustion into Bitcoin. And what that's doing is it's essentially um, becoming a carbon negative technology, where we're removing what would otherwise get you know output into the atmosphere, and turning that stranded energy into, I mean, a monetary network. And you know, when you then layer on what does Bitcoin do for these communities and what does Bitcoin do for uh, for society, you're kind of seeing that we're running a monetary network off wasted, stranded, cheap energy, which is also globally distributed. Um, it's a very, very fair system at, at the core level, and uh, you know it, it's almost too beautiful and elegant to uh, you know to, to wrap your head around. But it, it is one of these things that we are just seeing playing out, not because of subsidies, not because of government directives, not because of corporate directives, because the free market has essentially created these incentives, and they make sense, and people are literally following those those uh, free market incentives, which is great.
0: Excellent. Now back to on chain. Talk to us about ancient coins and Gox. You guys have done some work recently on this. So uh, what do our viewers need to know about coins that have been dormant for many years and are starting to come online again?
1: Yeah, this is a a really, really interesting chart that we had in our our report this week. Um, So when we look at, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, I think it's about 3.8 million coins have reached that um, seven plus year old threshold. Um, now, we mentioned before that coins older than five months have a low probability of spend. Coins older than seven years are a rare occurrence, right? That's not, that's not that they don't happen, but uh, they're very infrequent, certainly relative to, uh, to the rest of the network. Um, now, when we look at that cohort, whatever it is, 3.9 or 4.2, I can't remember the exact number, um, million coins, we've only seen about 350,000 that have ever been spent. That have got to that age bracket and then been spent, which is around 8.3 percent of the total um, uh, total in that category. So it's one of these things. It's more. Um, I mean, we mentioned before discounting lost coins. Um, it's an inexact science uh, because you know un- until a coin is spent, you can assume that it could be lost. Um, once it's spent, you assume that it's no longer lost. But you know, it's, it's one of these interesting dynamics. Um, so we will often use seven years as kind of a threshold to estimate those lost coins. Um, And the reason being, if you've held your coins for seven years, um, you have seen some legitimate volatility, right? You've seen the ups, the downs, the sideways. Um, It is pretty hard for someone to hodl uh, for seven years, although that may become increasingly more popular. Um, So it's a really interesting dynamic, uh, kind of tracking it both from a discounting economic effects, right? We don't really want to be counting coins that are long lost or long dormant. um, But at the same time, they do come back to life. And, uh, you know, these coins could have been acquired at, at a hundred dollars, $200. So, you know, putting in 10 grand uh, back then is a lot more than putting in 10 grand today. So there's that element to it. Um, There's also, I mean, in my view, the ancient coin is more of a a bit of a novelty. It's kind of interesting. Um, When you then look at things like Mt. Gox um, and you look at things like uh, the US government, um, these are two enormous supply um uh concentrations so there's about 137 I think thousand bitcoin in mount gox um and 205 held by us authorities i mean and and that's all uh, coins seized from various hacks and uh malfeasance over the years um now these are two significant chunks of chunks of supply right there and mount gox is as big as michael Saylor and um uh and and the us government holds even more than that now we believe that Mt. Gox will probably undergo distributions at some point this year. That appears to be the, uh, the current state of play. Um, and, you know, there's lots of people who are going to question, what are they going to do? They're going to send them to exchanges, a creditor is going to immediately market sell them. Um, and the answer is nobody knows, right? So the market will probably be a bit volatile um, in and around that area. Um, so, you know, a simple answer is have a plan, prepare for it and uh, just set an alert for when, when that balance starts to decline, you know, distributions are starting to take place um, and the market will probably react. Um, when it comes to the US government side, um, we saw a couple of weeks back um, that they distributed about 9,800, I think, BTC to Coinbase. Um, quite often, um, you'll hear stories like, you know, they'll auction off sets of these coins. And uh, whilst I don't you know, I necessarily subscribe to this notion, there are going to be some institutions and, and, and folks out there that, you know, if you're buying coins at scale, right, OTC essentially from the uh, from the US government, some of these entities will see it as probably the most blessed state, right? They're coins that the U.S. government essentially distributed, so therefore, you know, they're pretty much the safest to own from that regulatory uh, landscape. Um, so, they and, and the end result here is it naturally is going to take demand off the market. They may well have been there sitting there on uh, on exchanges looking to actually take coins off the open market, and that's essentially going to absorb their demand elsewhere. Um, so, in many ways, it's kind of just supply sinks to be aware of. Um, for Mt. Gox, we know there's going to be distributions, we're pretty sure, in 2023. Um, how creditors end up uh, behaving in that instance, um, you know, it's kind of anyone's guess, but uh, I would say for many of those creditors, they've had the opportunity to actually distribute their, their share um, up to this point. And simultaneously, I mean... 2013. That's a long time ago. Um, yes, you're in a lot of profit, but also personally, you've probably also discounted to kind of come to terms with it. And um, you know, the the probability that they kind of hang on to them, I think, is actually not not
2: insignificant. Fantastic. You you always break things down so so well, so comprehensively. One thing I want to ask you uh, is about address creation. Um, you know, people have gone back and forth about how, how much new address creation can be used to actually gauge new users on the network versus just new addresses being created, right? It's, there's address creation and there's actually, you know, the a- addresses that are active, right? They're actively sending and receiving UTXOs and they are going through and being confirmed on Bitcoin's blockchain. How much stock do you put behind address creation because when you break it up by cohort uh, and you guys do this in a tremendous way um addresses uh, uh you know bitcoin addresses that have a balance of uh anywhere from 0.01 all the way up to ten thousand bitcoin and one thing that i've seen is that addresses uh, with the balance of bitcoin or or of ten or fewer uh they haven't stopped rising uh, even through the bear market they continue to rise whereas addresses um uh, you know, that that whole Bitcoin of uh, any more than 10, right? 10 to 10,000, those have been on the decline. What sort of implications can you draw from that? And how much stock do you actually put behind address creation?
1: Yeah. So um, I actually really like, um, there's there's kind of two answers to that question. One is what I'd put in the bucket of on-chain activity, which is how alive and and active the network is. And then there's the supply side of things. Um, But across both of those, um, my general advice is don't overthink it, right? Quite often, Um, The the kind of most intuitive answer makes a lot of sense. So in the on-chain activity side, we're looking at things like addresses, transaction counts, transaction volumes. Um, We like to use what we call a momentum chart, right? Give me the one-year moving average and the 30-day moving average. Is the 30-day moving average more than the one year? It shows that there's been more activity recently than the baseline. Um, And generally speaking, that's a pretty good indicator. Um, The other concept to to keep in mind there is what I, I like to refer to as payload. If you're moving around active addresses, transaction counts, uh, and this is increasingly relevant right now, you've got a I mean, transaction counts are at all time high, but the transaction volume, the payload of that, or the realized value of that is actually quite small. And this is being driven by inscriptions, ordinals, stamps, all these other things. Now, the the read there is that there's there's adoption going on. There are people who are using Bitcoin and transacting using wallets but they're not moving around a lot of coin. So just take those two, like they're just kind of two observations. Um, It's still positive because it's adoption, but it's also not huge volumes of coins moving around. So, you know, you can kind of weight your conclusions accordingly. Um, Now, moving across to the supply side of the equation, um, you know, uh, we put out a paper called The Shrimp Supply Sink uh, recently, which is a a really, really fun read. Um, And, you know, uh, one of the crowd favorites, right, for critics is, uh, oh, look, all the coins are held by five Bitcoin wallets and the whole thing's a scam as a result. And essentially, we, you know, we wrote a report about that back in, I think it was 2020, um, that addressed and said, well, yeah, not really. Um, anyway, we did another piece two years later, um, which more or less reaffirmed that. And uh, one of the great, there's a couple of really cool insights from this. Um, we developed a metric which is called absorption rates. And the idea is, okay, you've got shrimp, you've got crabs, you've got um, uh, whales. These are kind of these different cohorts of coin holders how do we normalize them and just see who's growing their share and who's shrinking it? And the concept was, let's look at it in terms of the coins that are mined. We have 900 coins per day and we, have, uh, we annualize that, right? How much supply came onto the market? Now, if the shrimp increased their balance by that same amount, then they would return an absorption rate of 100%. They absorbed 100% of the newly mined supply. Um, now, the shrimp, really, these are people less than one BTC, They absorbed, I think it's like 117% over the last year. So they took all the coins that were mined and another 17% of it. Um, Then you've got the Crab cohort, which is one to 10. Um, They took another 105% or something. So you're like, okay, hang on a second. We only had 100% coming into the market via mining. um, And that assumes miners sold everything. Where are these smaller cohorts getting their coins from? And the big picture view is that pretty much all cohorts, except for whales and exchanges, have seen their balances grow. Um, So at the end of the day, what you're seeing is that these extraordinarily large holders, and by the way, that includes things like MicroStrategy, GBTC, which has many, many owners, and you could argue so does MicroStrategy, Um, uh, things like WBTC, which is distributed elsewhere. There's all these big ETF-style supply sinks within that whale cohort. So if you actually look at what this means, investors are pulling coins off exchanges, primarily, I think they saw a you know, negative 170% um, by that same metric. And whales, who is often the critique, we're saying, oh, look, whales dominate this market, are actually and have been, this is not a new phenomenon. This is like a six year long, uh, you could almost argue the entirety of Bitcoin's history, whales have been net distributors. Um, so in many ways, to me, that is a very, very healthy observation. Um, you know, As a Bitcoiner, I love the fact that miners are selling because it distributes coins. And I love the fact that Shrimp are essentially growing their balance because that's what you want to see. You want to see the smallest people in society getting the maximum benefit. Um, so if that means it requires a bit of patience, happy days from my, from my perspective. Um, but I think in terms of the resilience of the Bitcoin holder base, um, it's to me exactly what you want to be seeing.
2: Fantastic. You know, Bitcoin holders growing ever more resilience, I think is the, the name of the game, really, cycle after cycle. People see this volatile macro asset, but then they, they begin to realize after holding it for some time and then actually using it and see what it, seeing what it can do, um, you know, they, they grow more convicted in their ways. One of my favorite charts is um, presented.
1: There's, um, there's one more point I might just yeah. add to that. Um, on, on the shrimp, we, we often look at what we call a net position change. Um, uh, show me the 30-day change of metric X. Um, when we look at uh, the balance held by Shrimp, they've seen four like major spikes higher. The first one was the 2017 top, which you know, um, being someone who came in at that 2017 top, that was me, right, buying a bunch of coins and then getting rinsed all the way down. We've seen three more since then, following Luna, following FTX, and recently. And, you know, when when you look at that, we mentioned before that, you know, smart money is kind of people who are looking at FTX and being like, the narrative was that Bitcoin is dead for 10 years. Imagine stepping in front of that train, right? These are people who seriously understand it. So when I see Shrimp doing the exact, like more than what they were buying at the 2017 top, except at the bottom, that to me is a, a, like psychologically, that has a lot of signal in there. I'm not sure a lot of people understand and appreciate just how meaningful that distinction really is. It's it's, it's quite remarkable. It shows that
2: the cohorts are learning because, generally speaking, the younger Absolutely. cohorts are seen as speculative dumb money. But now you're seeing the people who who are holding less coins. They are becoming more educated into what Bitcoin is.
1: Absolutely, and and that's one of the things I love about and always attracted me to One Chain Analytics is it's you know um, every man for himself. The data is out there. It's all available. It's public, and uh, you get some retail folks who are brilliant right? That who, who have been studying this thing and really understanding it um, and, and finding edge that institutions wish that they could find, right? It's all out there, but it's the proof of work of actually studying it. And these shrimp are out there doing it. It's, it's, it's great to see.
0: One quick clarification for the audience, Check. Can you explain to us the cohorts that you're referring to? So when you say the word shrimp, you're referring to those that have Bitcoin balances of one BTC or less, and when you're describing whales, you're saying uh, these are a th- hundred or a thousand, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand and above. And so, uh, give us a uh, the the in between cohorts just for the audience, please.
1: Sure. Um. So, so when we talk about shrimp, we're talking about less than one BTC. Um, when we talk about crabs; it's you know one to ten. Uh, I think we've then got fish, ten to a hundred, sharks, a hundred to a thousand. Um. Now there is there is a bit of nuance there, which is probably worth just touching on. Um, and that is that uh, this is based on our wallet clustering. Now, if you're a, um, a, a hodler and you're buying a you know, monthly DCA, for example, um, for argument's sake, let's say you're buying 0.1 BTC. If you technically did that for 10 months, you would have one BTC. So you would move up into the next tier. The only challenge there is that, that we can only see that those monthly DCAs are the same person if you don't do privacy best practice, right? If you're not using addresses at the same time, if you're not combining UTXOs, If you're using privacy best practices, we actually see 10 shrimp, right? And if you keep buying every one every month, we see 12, 13, 14 shrimp entities. So um, that's why we will often use these kind of larger buckets. Um, It's also why when we're looking at like active entities, for example, if you're active once a month, then that's still a relevant metric. You are an active entity that month. So that's why I said before, um, people don't need to necessarily overthink these metrics. Um, You know, generally speaking, your gut feel for what you're looking at is, is typically about right. Um, and if you actually give it a bit more buffer, you know, look at shrimp, just less than one. I don't particularly care the denominations within that. Just show me less than one. Um, when you're looking at that, compare it also to the crabs. And you can kind of see that retail-esque bucket. And generally speaking, you don't see too many divergences. Behavior patterns across those things tend to be
2: uh, fairly consistent. Phenomenal. I've got one more for you, and then we'll pass it to Nick. This has been fascinating. Um, I personally did not know that actual the the behavioral patterns of the cohorts were shifting. Uh, But of course, that's something that you'd expect in the maturation of an asset. It becomes uh, traded differently. Um, One of the things that I I really love that you publish is uh, it's it's not necessarily to do with on-chain, just purely price action, and it's the percent drawdown from all-time high. Um, It's it's a tremendous chart to look at and refer to, and it's also an easy chart to onboard onboard people into the concept of Bitcoin Bitcoin being an asset that is magnified several times over in its liquidity profile and will continue doing so, right? These drawdowns uh, get lower and lower and lower. Um, uh, from the, uh, on a percentage basis from their all-time high, as this liquidity profile expands, people start to take this asset more seriously and hold on to it. Um, what do you think the implications will be uh, for Bitcoin, let's say a decade, two decades, three decades from now, um, when we're talking about you know, the shrimp cohort? They're ostensibly totally priced out of using layer one Bitcoin. Um, what sort of solutions do you think there, uh, you know, are going to to be? Do you think that the average individual won't even interact with the Bitcoin blockchain? What do you think that relationship is going to be? How Bitcoin's blockchain will be used, and what it will be, uh, you know, sort of what the space will be reserved for a decade, two decades down the line as Bitcoin matures as an asset?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, back at the the block size scaling wars, um, essentially the decision was was kind of made there. Um, uh, via consensus, that we're essentially going to be scaling in layers, right? Introducing SegWit, allowing things like Lightning Network. Um, I do believe that Bitcoin will expand in layers um, and we're seeing innovation in that, right? Lightning is developing, things like Fedimint are starting to develop. And, you know, I'm a big advocate for try these things, um, experiment with what's going to work, but also the right tool for the right job. Um, There will be points in time when uh, base layer on-chain settlement makes the most sense. Um, you know, if you're settling a house deposit, for example, it makes the most sense for large volumes like that, meaningful volumes, um, or areas where you truly just want that level of savings um, to be on the base layer. But we also know that for Bitcoin's trajectory, right, if it's going to become a global reserve asset, then base layer fees are going to get expensive. Um, so from that lens, there's a, there is a future there where people are only existing on lightning or something else. It may not even be lightning. It could be something else that comes along um but i do believe we will scale in layers um i also as much as i'm a self custody maximalist i also am a realist and i do believe that we will have a lot of people who just prefer to have the standard traditional banking rails and be able and allow the banks to settle between each other right they've got their bank account that's where they're going to custody their coins um that is what's going to happen uh, i think to to a large proportion of people because it's more convenient it takes away a lot of the risk factors but they will st- you know that these banking institutions will still use the lightning channels they 'll still use the on chain settlement um, essentially it becomes a, a, a settlement service uh, more or less. So the answer is i don 't know where this is going to go. Um, what I am excited for is that it is going to scale in layers it 's going to make the Bitcoin economy increasingly interesting to analyze, um, increasingly dynamic um, and we are going to have to consider these things right if a coin isn 't moving, is that because it 's in a lightning channel or it 's actually zipping around you know a hundred times a second for micropayments? Um, all of these things are going to evolve. And, uh, you know, as an analyst, it's, that's super exciting for me.
0: Now, when we think about on-chain metrics, and you mentioned that when we're looking at cohorts and shrimp stacking, we have to take it with a grain of salt and we have to understand that because Bitcoin is a pseudonymous network, we're not entirely able to identify all the details within that we might not want. So we have to make a lot of assumptions. So my final question to you is, as we move forward, we have on-chain analytics, we have this uh, qualitative understanding that we have to have like exchange mapping or uh, those sort of dynamics where we have to translate the raw data into more actionable data. And then you have an outfit like the Bitcoin layer where we're analyzing Bitcoin through a global macro lens and we're not ignoring on-chain, but it's less than I would say, 50% of our core work that we're doing and our coverage. So give the audience your sense, your best approach to analyzing this Bitcoin asset class going forward over the next five plus years on chain, macro, both. And how how do you just think about it going forward?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm a student of macro as well. Um, You know, I'm obviously not trained in it. My background is in civil engineering, but I certainly see the economy as a machine. And, um, you know, when I look at on-chain data um, and, you know, I exclusively use on-chain data. I do not do technical analysis. Um, You know, I'll poke around and understand, but I'm not on the Fred database looking at macro data. Um, And yet, once you kind of get the feel for Bitcoin's heartbeat, um, I've been trying to decipher why this is. Um, you see a huge amount of information that is reflecting what's going on in the world. So for example, I didn't need to know that there was a liquidity profile change back in October. What I saw is a textbook Bitcoin bottom forming and it responding to that. And I kind of put myself back in 2019, right? I'm learning about macro. I'm seeing this, this global sovereign debt crisis. I'm like, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I think it's going to happen. So my, I exercised my view on the economy by buying and self-custodying Bitcoin, right? That was how I expressed my view on the economy. So in many ways, Bitcoin, and I I do believe this is increasingly true, it's almost becoming an index, a calendar, a clock, a behavior pattern um, of society. Now it's a subset of society, but it's a meaningful subset of society. And it's also a meaningful subset of people who are pretty clued in, right? I mean, how many Bitcoin podcasts are there where they talk about macroeconomics. It's not like Bitcoiners aren't aware of what's going on. The reason we hold this strange, weird internet money is because we look at the world around us and we go, this is a very sane answer to this problem. So in my view, on-chain data contains all of those decisions. And you mentioned before, um, I often get comments like this, um, that's, uh, oh, but look, you know, I-, I bought my coin at 21K and I only withdrew it at 24K. It's like, yeah, but some other guy bought at 30K and withdrew at 24K too. And what you'll find is that at the individual level, your error bars can be large, but macro scale, macro scale, when you look across everybody, everybody, the patterns are just unbelievably accurate. And, you know, um, often at the bottom of bear market, people say, oh, no, it's not realized loss, it's people ta- tax loss harvesting. Okay. When do people tax loss harvest? It's not at the top of a bull market. It's always at the bottom of a bear market. That's the most logical time to do it. So it shows up every single cycle, that same behavior pattern. It's a constant. Um, so when I kind of, and this is probably the most important point when it comes to on-chain analytics. At the end of the day, the asset changes, j mood changes, right? The interest rate changes, the year changes, but our ape brain And the way that we respond as as a human species, the way we respond to fear, greed, and all the emotions of markets is never going to change, right? It's the reason that we can do technical analysis in the 1920s, because we do the same thing in response to the same stimulus. Um, And Bitcoin is essentially an immutable database of all of these collective decisions. Um, So, you know, you can filter stuff out when you look at uh, exchanges, you can filter these things out. But generally speaking, you're looking at humans. And if you look at on-chain data from that perspective, um, the whole world lights up and it, uh, it makes a whole lot of sense.
0: Remarkable conclusion, Checkmate. Thank you so much for your analysis, your honest opinion, and uh, your skill set, your uh, understanding, a deep understanding of Bitcoin as an asset class. Lead analyst from Glassnode, Checkmate, please tell people where they can find you, your newsletter, and your information online.
1: Thanks guys. No, it's been a real pleasure. Um, So we put out a newsletter every Monday uh, called The Week on Chain. Um, It is essentially, and you know, the great thing about this is we've been writing this thing since uh, February, 2021. And uh, we've essentially got a bear cycle and we're, you know, hopefully in the process of writing a bull cycle. Um, We've got, Basically, the the on-chain manual of what we were looking at at those particular times. We also have a YouTube channel which comes out on Tuesdays. Um, you know, the, the, I kind of those are really prepared for for two sets of people: people who want to learn to use the tools, right, and actually um, understand at a technical level, right? Whether you're a an analyst who's on the micro time frame or an allocator with a larger time frame. Um, but also, some you know these tools are perfect for surviving as a hodler. And I've had many people say that you know. Understanding the tools and the, um, uh, you know, the, the video content, the, the newsletters, and then actually looking at the charts in, uh, in studio um, helps survive the volatility because, I, I, sure, Bitcoin price went down, Bitcoin price went up. But because I can see and understand why that happened, it makes it easy to hodl. So it works on both ends of the spectrums, right, for the traders and for the uh, um, uh, for the casual investors, uh, for the hodlers. Um, so, yeah, you'll find that on uh, insights.glassnode. Um, and on our YouTube channel at Glassnode.
0: Phenomenal. Uh, on behalf of Joe Consorti, I'm Nick Batia. Thank you for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Make sure to like this video, subscribe to the channel, and don't forget to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at thebitcoinlayercom subscribe Thanks, everyone.
2: The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from Bitcoin, taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further, this is extremely simple, everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box, and better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the slash foundation to get yours today. Now, on with the video.